first is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Starting in chapter 8 and reading 25, verse 25. 12 to 25. All right. Therefore, sisters and brothers, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit are a Spirit of God, are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then, the Gospel of Matthew. thirteen twenty-four to 30 and 36 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. Kingdom of heaven. Is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No. He answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and gather it into my barn. Then down to 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons and daughters of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons and daughters of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine, the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So earlier this summer, uh, my former denomination debated a report on human sexuality. Were they going to require pastors, elders, deacons, and professors at the college and seminary to declare that people in same-sex marriages and people who identify as trans are in sin? Now, my parents watched the proceedings over Zoom and said that at one point somebody got up and said, look, I understand that you believe these things are sin." But lots of things are sinful. Why are you so focused on this particular one? Well, a pastor uh, came up and provided the answer. The point was not to suggest that this sin was somehow worse than other sins, but, he said, this is about responding to this cultural moment. Now is the time to take a strong stand against this sin. So I mentioned all this, talking about this with Pastor Scott from St. Peter's when he stopped by on Thursday. We were sitting on our front porch talking when suddenly lightning flashed, thunder boomed, and the rain poured. Suddenly I said, wait, is that that hail? And the thunder answered, hail, yeah, it's hail. As hailstones just started pouring down some size of golf balls. Scott and I stood there stunned. Leaves were swirling in the air. Rain was flooding our driveway, and hail pinged, popped, dinged, and knocked on everything in sight. When it was over, our yard looked like we had pulled our house out of a box of packing peanuts. It was everywhere. I've never seen anything like it before. But that's sort of par for the course these days, right? Weather that we've, like we've never seen it before. It's part of our cultural moment. And do we know why? It's the gays. All that rainbow house gas emitted during June, all that pride last month warmed the atmosphere and caused climate change. Now, Paul does speak about creation as being in bondage, as crying out from its bondage. And for centuries, the church had the privilege of understanding that metaphorically as just sort of poetic language. We don't have that luxury. A few weeks back, the average temperature across the globe was the highest it's ever been. And wildfires are raging so out of control that here, thousands of miles away, the air isn't safe to breathe and the sun changes a strange shade of orange. And it is crying out. It is crying out 
against our sin. Now, the Bible does have things to say regarding our sexuality, but it is, that is far less of a concern than, say, greed. It warns us again and again, over and over, about greed, about our, our vain ambition. And it is the case that greed, ambition, through that we have shackled the creation. We have made it our slave. In this cultural moment, our capacity to exploit its resources is unprecedented. And the creation is crying out. So no, I don't think my former denomination is responding to the sin of this cultural moment. I think they've found a way to avoid it because, like myself and so many others, we're far too committed to that sin. In fact, we're so committed to it, we're convinced that it's not only not all that bad, we're tempted to believe that it's actually necessary and even quite helpful. So the, the farmer and poet and philosopher Wendell Berry, who I recommend, uh, he illustrates this point with an editorial that was in the New York Times by the columnist Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman suggests that, you know, for us to endure the looming climate crisis, we need to devote ourselves, says Friedman, to both Mother Nature and, this is the phrase he uses, Father Greed. We will devise solutions when, we do, when doing so promises a big paycheck. That's how we'll get it done. This, argues Wendell Berry, illustrates just how lost we are. We think that the only way out of the mess we've created is the very sin that got us into the mess. It's like digging your way out of a hole. Another place where he sees this same sort of thinking, sort of surprised me, is he does not like, Wendell Berry does not like the phrase renewable energy. Now, the term, of course, refers to the fact that, say, solar energy or you know, wind turbines and so forth, that they are drawing energy from the sun and we're not likely to drain the sun of, of energy. We're not likely to make wind go away. Um, but his point is, again, look, it is our inability to live within constraints on our consumption that created this crisis. The promise of renewable energy is the promise that we don't have to worry about our consumption habits because there's always more. And that's just not how the earth works. It's just that kind of thinking that got us into this mess. There is no solution to the climate crisis that doesn't involve us changing, that doesn't involve us repenting from our sin. It requires us to learn to live within certain limits. The earth is growing. It is groaning. 
But as you look carefully at that passage, it's not groaning for us to save it. It's groaning, it's crying out for us to be saved, for us to be changed. It's crying out for our salvation to be revealed in us. It is crying out for a people whose deepest longings seek don't seek satisfaction in a, the limits, a limited creation, but in an infinite God. A salvation, salv- our salvation, if we do that, if we find our salvation in God's infinite uh, grace and glory, then it'll be the salvation of everything else too. The creation itself will be free. But I understand the temptation I understand the temptation to think that we can solve our problems. Uh, We can use our problems to solve our problems, you know, fighting fire with fire and all that. And I also understand that when we can't do that, there is also that temptation to just avoid our problems and focus on something else, to point over there and say, ah, look, look over there, there's the sin of our cultural moment. There are the weeds. Let's get our pitchforks and get them. Which brings us to the parable. This parable, I think, like most parables, is designed to sort of jar us and uh, work against our expectations. You know, our assumption in that story is the same assumption of that, those field hands. Uh, the thing to do when you've discovered that your enemy has sowed weeds in your field is go and get those weeds. But to our surprise, the master says, nope, let him be. Now, truth be told, there could be a way of making the case that, in fact, that is a, prop, a good response to those weeds. Uh, the fact is that growing only one thing in, in a vast tract of land uh, runs contrary to nature and causes soil to be depleted. But Jesus isn't talking about biodiversity here. He, it, it, the point of the parable is again to uh, jar us, to mess with our expectations. And, you know, for a couple of reasons, it, it messes with our expectations. First of all, these weeds are competing for resources with the wheat. Um, and so, weeding, when, you know, when you're trying to grow something, weeding just comes with the territory. Uh, weeding is fundamental. Second, this is the work of an enemy. You know, uh, you can't let an enemy get away with this. We had to take care of business. It reminds me of one night, uh, my dad, was about, this is a long time ago, was about to go to bed, and he was, oh, I gotta take out the trash. As it was late at night, he goes out to put out the trash. As he's on his way, he sees uh, the tree in the front lawn covered with toilet paper. And so he takes, you know, takes all the toilet paper from the tree, pulls it all down, puts it in the trash can, and puts it all, also at the end of the driveway. Because there's no way he was going to let those kids have the satisfaction of seeing their handiwork in the daylight. Well, here Jesus tells a story in which the enemy basically TPs a whole field. And it's, there's no satisfaction not just in the morning. This is, Jesus is a lot, saying that the, this the master of this household is going to allow this enemy to have the satisfaction of seeing his handiwork, not just one day, but until harvest time. Why? 
Well, it seems to me that here again, Jesus is asking us to learn to live within some limits, to recognize our limits. You know, we, we, we can do some weeding, but we're also going to pull some wheat. And that's just too high stakes. And I think, again, as with Paul's passage, we are seeing this on an even greater scale, right? Because our problem is not taking out weeds. It's not taking out the work of enemies. We've become very good at that. Our military, our military weaponry, can take out every weed. But increasingly, these weapons are also taking out a lot of wheat, right? We, can, we have enough, the world has enough of these weapons not only to take out all the weeds and the wheat, but to make sure the field never grows a living thing ever again. So yeah, we can get rid of weeds, but not weeds only. You know, and I think about this also in terms of like, you know, the, the quote-unquote war on drugs. You know, drug dealers, drug producers, drug users, I guess we see them as weeds. And we're going to uproot them. We're going to clean up our streets, mandatory minimum sentence, three strikes and you're out and all that. And what we've done is put a lot of people in jail. Has it done much to fix our problems? No, not really. In fact, oftentimes what happens when you put a lot of people in jail is you just create anxiety and instability within those communities. And a community that's full of anxiety and instability is a community that's susceptible to drug use, either for income or to medicate their anxiety and uh, instability. At the same time, I don't think that these passages are inviting us to just throw up our hands and give up to just let the weeds have their way and take over the field. I don't think it's just, these aren't passages it's about, all right, learn, learn some tolerance. As with last week's parable, what we have to do to understand this parable uh, is to stick with Jesus. You know, ultimately, we don't learn what it means to live in a world that is tangled a tangled mass of weeds and wheat from the parable itself. We learn that, not from the parable, but from the parable teller. When you think about Jesus, when he is standing silent before Pilate, Pilate can't figure out what, what is with you, right? He thinks he's just giving up. He thinks he's just giving in to the weeds, that he's going to give the enemy the satisfaction of seeing him treated like a weed. But of course, he's wrong. Jesus is very much taking on the enemy in a way we would not have expected. You know, when Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Jesus isn't asking us to just like, just sit there and take it just to shrug our shoulders and give up. He's, he's not asking us to tolerate evil. He's asking us to be like him and take it on, to join him in overcoming. That isn't so much the work of tolerance, it's the work of love. And in this weed-riddled world, that takes work. That takes practice. John, John Meacham wrote a biography of the congressman and civil rights leader, John Lewis, 
And that story demonstrates just how much work. Um, John Lewis died three years ago last, last Sunday, uh, but he first gained national prominence in his participation in the civil rights movement. You know, when he and others decided they were going to sit in at these lunch counters, these segregated lunch counters, they prepared. They practiced. You know, they would, some would play, take on the role of the, the protesters, people sitting at the, the counter. Others would play the role then of the patrons, the white patrons, and, and they would call them names. They would shove them. They would slap them, and they would kick them. Uh, and the ribs when they were down. And they did that not to get used to it, uh, not to learn to tolerate it. Nonviolence uh, to Lewis was not simply about refusing to respond to violence with violence or, or even to refuse to respond to hate with hate. The work there, the practice there, was to learn to love to respond to the hate with love, to respond to the violence with love, and that was how they were going to overcome. Uh, in his memo, or, uh, memoir, uh, Bono talks about a tension that he's wrestled with all his life. And sometimes he says, you know, I can't change the world but I can change myself. At other times, he says, I can't change myself, but at least I can work to change the world. I think that that is, I think that's a healthy tension to live in because those two things are never, they're never the same, but they're never totally separate. You know, John Lewis and his fellow civil rights advocates were working to change the world, but they knew that doing that also required change in themselves. They had to learn to overcome the weeds by cultivating love in themselves for others. That takes work. It's the work of a lifetime. Like some tender plant making its way up from the soil, shooting up amidst weeds, some of those weeds are around me. Some of those weeds are even within me. I need help. I need, I need help. I need regular care and feeding. And my desires are often so big, so unlimited, and so easily misdistracted. I need to remember where my hope lies. And I need to cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says that when we do that, the Spirit of God is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. A status, we have a shared status with Christ in terms of glory. If you want to deal with the weeds, take that in. What Christ has, you have. All your, your desires are going to be filled infinitely with glory. There, it seems to me, is where you find strength to make the change you need to make, to give the creation the freedom it needs, to give your, 
those around you their freedom and to know that they are loved. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.